Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's presidential candidates sign peace pledge ahead of elections. And UN envoy brief the Security Council on the situation in Afghanistan. In economics news, Nigerian manufacturers express concern over African free trade agreement. And in sports news, Argentina beat Nigeria to reach 2018 World Cup last 16. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Sudan's President Sovakir and rebel leader Rehik Macha have reportedly broken a deadlock in peace talks being held in the Sudanese capital Khartoum after East African leaders stepped up calls for an end to a brutal civil war in the world's youngest country. A new round of talks opened in Khartoum hosted by Sudan's President Umar al-Bashir and another round of talks in Addis Ababa and Ethiopia last week. South Sudan offered to allow a rebel representative to join its government on Friday, but ruled out Machar himself. Civil rights groups and Democrats have denounced the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in favor of the Trump administration's travel ban targeting people from several Muslim-majority countries. The ban prohibits most people from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria and Yemen from entering the U.S., The court's reversal is viewed as a victory for the Trump administration. Outside the Supreme Court, Democratic Congressman Sulut Kabajal addressed demonstrators. Today is a very, very sad day for our country. Let's all repeat what we're feeling. Shame! 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 Today, the Supreme Court ruled in a way, in a way that sets us back, in a way that undermines our rights, our American values. Several Congolese, Malian and Yemeni groups have been added to the United Nations annual blacklist of groups violating children's rights in wartime. The document lists some 15 countries in which violations of children's rights have been found. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres also voiced alarm at the sharp increase in violations. The UN document says the Islamic State group in the Middle East and Boko Haram in Africa continue to recruit and use children on a large scale, freeing themselves from the borders. Leaders of a Moroccan protest movement have been sentenced to up to 20 years in prison over their roles in demonstrations that rocked the north of the country in 2016. Leader of the popular movement Nasir Zafzafi, as well as three other leaders, 
were jailed for plotting to undermine the security of the state over protests in the Rif region. A total of 53 people were sentenced after a, ni- a near nine-month trial, with penalties ranging from a year in prison and a fine of 520 US dollars to 20 years in jail. And finally, the campaign group Amnesty International says it has evidence that the military in Myanmar had been preparing for an offensive against the Rohingya people before a series of attacks by Rohingya militants on the security services last August. The army has also insisted its operations was a response to a specific terrorist threat. But the human rights group says the Burmese military targeted villages in a coordinated campaign of rape, torture and murder. Matthew Wells is with Amnesty International. The military is responsible for crimes against humanity and that those crimes go up to the senior levels of the command in terms of who was responsible. There was a real organized campaign to drive the Rohingya out of Myanmar and into neighboring Bangladesh, which is why we now have more than 700,000 Rohingya in Bangladesh. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, June the 27th, the 178th day of 2018, with 187 days left in the year. Now, presidential candidates for Zimbabwe's July 30th election have signed a peace pledge yesterday, committing to a violence-free, transparent and credible election. The pledge comes a few days after an explosion at the ruling ZANU-PF election rally in Bulawayo on Saturday that killed two people and injured 47 others. Zimbabwe's previous elections have been marred by violence and President Emerson Nagagwa has been emphasizing the need for the country to uphold peace to ensure free, fair and credible polls. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. A few days after a horrific bomb explosion at a political party in Bulawayo over the weekend, Zimbabwean political parties have pledged to campaign in peace. At least 49 people, including government officials, were injured and unconfirmed reports indicate two have died of bomb injuries. Citizens are still shocked and wondering how this event would affect the July 30 polls as Zimbabweans are generally peace-loving people. The president has assured citizens nothing like a coup or further acts of terror would okay in Zimbabwe ahead of the elections. Meanwhile, through the help of National Peace and Reconciliation Commission, the United Nations and the EU, and many more democratic institutions on Tuesday and in the capital, several political parties signed a peace pledge. It was an emotional moment for the MDCT. The party national chairperson Morgan Komich expressed. As a party, we have no appetite for peace papers, but we want to experience peace, which we have not experienced for so long. 
Dr. Chairperson of um, Zimbabwe Human Rights uh, Commission defined peace in its totality. That peace is not the absence of war only, but it includes all things that he mentioned, plus sharing ice cream, sharing drink, eating food together, communicating with your ancestral spirits, falling in love with the environment. That's how peace goes when it defines. However, in Zimbabwe, people can argue that we had peace. No, in peace terms, it's called negative peace. What we are here today trying to achieve is the positive peace, which every Zimbabwean has been missing and as a disease has been suffering from. For some political parties, especially MDC led by Professor Welshman Nguwe, this was the time to expose the atrocities allegedly committed by the ruling ZANU-PF. In making our pledge and our commitment, we must remain mindful of the fact that the primary responsibility for ensuring peace in our country rests with the government. It is the government that must ensure that all the conditions which lead to insecurity are dealt with and are removed. Most of the things that need to be done don't cost any money. They simply require that we refrain from doing things as already observed by those who spoke before me, not just physically harm others, but ensure that we create a climate of peace, a climate of tolerance. ZANU-PF representative Dr. Obed Mpofu took time to defend his party, exonerating President Emerson Mnangagwa from human rights abuses. I'll try as much as possible to avoid responding to some of the accusations that have been leveled against my party and government. And um, peace is not about opening up the wounds, but healing the wounds. And that's what ZANU-PF stands for. And I just want to say to my colleagues, I want to say to specifically to my brother, Professor that we subscribe to the clarion call on peace by our icon. That is my president, Comrade Emerson Nangakwa. The Code of Contact for Political Parties is a new set of guidelines Zimbabwean political parties have to abide by to uphold freedom of expression, choice, and allow equal participation of women. The EU ambassador, Felipe Van Dem, explained. We know it, and it has already been said before, no sustainable development without peace, no democracy without mutual respect and tolerance, but also no peaceful and respectful electoral climate without mechanisms to sanction those who do not abide by those principles. With the broadening of the electoral code of conduct to all stakeholders, you now have a powerful tool enhanced to monitor electoral behavior and to act against its non-compliance. Impunity undermines trust. According to a recent Afrobarometer survey, 70% of the voters wrongly think that they will have to present their voter registration slip on polling day to be allowed to vote. And more than 30% think that their vote will not be secret.
Meanwhile, Zimbabwe Human Rights Commission Chairperson Elasto Mugwadi condemned the assassination attempt on Munangagwa on Saturday, leaving two dead and 49 injured. We are, let me say, greatly saddened as Zimbabwe Human Rights Commission by the abhorrent attack on the ZANPF rally in Bulaway last Saturday, which has led to the loss of two lives. Our sincere condolences to the families of those who have lost their dear relatives. This was really uncalled for. And we wish those who were injured quick recovery. You may all be aware that the five Chapter 12 independent commissions with common objectives of supporting and entrenching human rights and the democracy in this country. Further, they support and entrench constitutionalism, the rule of law, and of course the interest and sovereignty of the people of this country. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Saturday's explosion at a rally in Bulawayo, which narrowly missed Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Nangagwa, is a reminder of the many unanswered questions relating to Zimbabwe's current politics. This is according to Tandai Biti, leader of the People's Democratic Party and presidential candidate in next month's election in that country. Biti was speaking on the sidelines of a workshop on Zimbabwe hosted by the South African Institute for International Affairs in Johannesburg. Busi Chimombe was there. President Emerson Nangagwa has described the incident which killed two and injured 49 as an attempt on his life, while various commentators have speculated that it is a result of infighting within the governing ZANU-PF party. Investigations are continuing with police saying they have offered a substantial reward for any information that will help in their investigations. People's Democratic Party leader and former finance minister Tendai Biti says Saturday's incident is a symptom of many unanswered questions in Zimbabwe. The Saturday explosion needs to be unpacked and unpacked fully. We had a coup in November of 2017. We didn't answer that coup. We didn't seek to understand what it meant and we did not carry out political, institutional, legal and constitutional reform to make sure that another coup does not happen. We are on the verge of another election, but with this unanswered question. And Saturday is a reminder of the unfinished question of November 2017. How does Zimbabwe guarantee that the army and the military are never in the streets of Zimbabwe again? With just over a month before Zimbabwe's 30 July general elections, BT is pessimistic that conditions exist for a free and fair poll, starting with the voters' roll prepared by the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, ZEC. Uh, right now I'm a, I'm a candidate, but I don't have sight of the, of the, of the, of the voters' roll. Parts of our alliance have been given uh, the voters' roll, uh, which is supposed to be searchable and analyzable uh, electronically, but it, it's not. Uh, it's supposed to, we did BVR registration, biometric voter registration. The copy we have been given is PDF. It doesn't have pictures. So even if they wanted to, they are not capable of organizing a free, fair, legitimate, credible election. Despite this, Biti says the opposition will participate in these elections because the dire economic situation in Zimbabwe must be reversed. He believes the Movement for Democratic Change Alliance, of which the PDP is a part, 
will benefit from a high number of youth that are registered to vote. He also believes that the Zimbabwean state, in the aftermath of the November 2017 coup, has been weakened like never before. Biti, however, says risks still exist, even if the opposition wins the election. The real issue is, having carried out a coup in November of 2017, will the military accept a victory of, by the people of Zimbabwe on the 30th of July 2018? And how will the international community, how will President Ramaphosa respond to a situation where people fail to respect the will of the people of Zimbabwe? And that's the time bomb that the region, that President Ramaphosa, that the African Union, that SADC, and indeed the UN and the UN Security Council is facing. That was leader of the People's Democratic Party in Zimbabwe, Tendai Biti, ending that report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. Now let's go back in time to today in 1977. Djibouti gains independence from France. At the time, it was the last of France colonies in Africa. That's today in history in the year 1977. Join Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we bring you a live broadcast of the Nelson Mandela Lecture by former U.S. President Barack Obama. Make a date with Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we celebrate Nelson Mandela's centenary birthday. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The ceasefires earlier this month in Afghanistan conducted by the government and the Taliban extremist group are a signal that peace is possible in the war-weary country. That's the assessment of Tadamichi Yamamoto, head of the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, UNAMA, who briefed the Security Council this week. UN Radio's Diane Penn asked Yamamoto about his message to the 15 ambassadors. In the Security Council, I had three things to take up. One is about the peace process and the ceasefire in Afghanistan. The other was on elections. And the third one is about the ministerial meeting that UN is hosting in Geneva. Now, on the uh, peace and ceasefire, for the first time in the 17 years of conflict, the Afghan government and the Taliban had unilaterally declared ceasefires. They were not coordinated. There were separate ceasefires, but coincided on the day of Eid festivities. And it was successful. There were no virtually no incidents during that period. It signaled that the peace is possible, that both sides have uh, control of their people, and that the, the leadership of Afghanistan government and the Taliban can talk and bring about peace if they wanted to. This was a very, very important thing. On the elections, now this is uh, uh, very important for the future democracy and political system of Afghanistan. For the first time, again, the Afghan people are conducting elections. The international community and the United Nations only assisting them. So the elections are Afghan-owned and Afghan-led. And there are, of course, many difficulties uh, when election preparations are made. But... 
rather than to criticize and complain, everybody, including political parties, political opposition, civil societies, government, should come together and help the Independent Election Commission to enable them to deliver on the fair and credible election. On the Geneva ministerial meeting, I'm not sure whether people know uh, about uh, the something called transformation decade. International community has said that between 2015 and 2024, this decade, Afghanistan shall get more aid than normal developing country because they need to transition from a country which is uh, dependent on international assistance to something self-reliant. And Geneva meet ministerial meeting uh, will be held in the midpoint of transformation decade. The international community uh, has worked with the Afghan uh, government and Afghan people, and they made a lot of achievements so far. But it's time to look at and see if what we have done is right. Do we need to change the way in which we have been working to make Afghanistan more self-reliant? Or can we go as we have been? The answer probably is that it has to have more private sector empowerment and depend on the private sector rather than international assistance. And this will be discussed. How is the UN mission or the international community yeah. supporting the electoral process? Well, the United Nations uh, has a lot of experience in elections across the globe. We also had helped elections in Afghanistan a number of times. And based on that uh, experience, uh, our experts advise the uh, Afghan uh, experts to ensure that the election is transparent and that it is inclusive of everybody. And we have actually experts working in the uh, Independent Electoral Commission. We have uh, 25 people working there. Is Afghanistan ready to hold the first set of elections in October? Yes, I'm sure that you know, they could do that uh, with the number of uh, Afghan people having expressed their desire to vote. Already 7 million people, as I say, have uh, expressed their desire. And uh, this is the, f the basis on which elections can be held. I want to go back to the um, ceasefire okay. with the government sure. and the Taliban. Of course, it has ended, as you mentioned. And recently you said that both the government and the Taliban are recognizing what you call the growing popular expressions of frustration with the unending war. Right. I wonder if you can explain that for our audience. Right. The war or the conflict actually uh, has the um, Afghan people as the largest victim. They are the ones who suffer from the fighting. Their livelihood is disturbed, their families are torn, and they find that the future is very uncertain. So the overriding number of Afghan people really are feeling that they really have had enough and that they want stability, they want foundation for their future growth and future security of their families and people to be uh, firmed up. That is what I mean. And the awareness that the, that is only possible through the peace which is realized through uh, negotiation has been now uh, shared by the, the Afghan people, Afghan government and the international community and more and more with the Taliban. But I think we still have to send message to Taliban that the peace is only possible through negotiation and not through military means.
Mr. Yamamoto, thank you so much for explaining all of those processes yes. um, that the UN is involved in. But I wonder if you can also tell us, like, on a daily basis, what does UNAMA do for the ordinary Afghan people? Well, thank you for that question, because I think that's one of the most important things that UNAMA does. We, uh, the United Nations, carry a very lofty ideal, and we implement them. We show what human rights means to the people, particularly what, for instance, providing the equal rights for women mean what helping children mean, what does providing education to the people mean. And the Afghan people really appreciate that the United Nations carry this ideal and try to bring it to the Afghan people. We United Nations have, uh, are held in high esteem by the Afghan people, not because we help them in the elections or, or the peace, but more because we show them how the dignity of human being is to be achieved and what is most important in human life, which is to care for individuals and bring about happiness for each person. That's Tadamichi Yamamoto, head of the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, and he was speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. It is 8.25 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, for feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Channel Africa one or at Rise Shine Africa. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org or send a WhatsApp on 277-6300327. Channel Africa, the African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na unai. Judgment is expected today in the High Court application of Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille, who is challenging her expulsion from South Africa's main opposition party, the DA. Judgment was reserved earlier this month after arguments were heard before a full bench of judges. DeLille's legal team argued that her expulsion from the party was illegal and unconstitutional, while the party contends that her membership ceased after she made a public intention to resign. Chris Mabuya reports from Cape Town. Dalil was reinstated as the mayor by the court pending the outcome of her application. Dalil turned to the court saying that this was the only way that she would ever find justice in the allegations leveled against her. She's challenging the constitutionality of the party's recalled laws and the cessation of her membership following a radio interview in which she stated that she would resign as soon as she cleared her name. In a recent interview, Delil says she's feeling positive. I've always respected the independence of the judiciary. I feel very happy that in an open court of law, I was able to state my side of the case and my version. And I'm sure that the court will consider all of the evidence and the arguments that my lawyers have put before them. But uh, I'm very positive. But according to the DA, Delil did indicate publicly in a radio interview her intentions to resign. DA Federal Executive Deputy Chairperson Natasha Mazon. You see, the interesting thing is this. No one in the Democratic Alliance or anyone else 
could have reasonably foreseen the fact that Maya Dillil would go on Eusebius Makaiser's show and resign in the manner which she did. At that particular point when she resigned and the complaint was brought to the FLC and the FLC found that according to our rules, if you utter or you make your intention to resign made known publicly, then your, your membership ceases. None of us could have foreseen that she was going to do that. So at that point, the disciplinary fell away because she was no longer a member. Meanwhile, the ANC in the Western Cape says the ongoing dispute between Delil and her party is crippling service delivery in the city. ANC Provincial Secretary Faiz Jacobs. It just exacerbates the service delivery failures of the DA. And so where we're asking the mayor to intervene where there's desperation, where there's emergencies, where there's crises, she's now a ceremonial that doesn't have the power. So whilst the DA is fighting amongst themselves, our people are suffering. Despite the stripping of her executive powers, Delil continues to do what she says is what she was elected to do as the mayor. She recently launched a pop-up office where she visited a number of Cape Flats townships. Political analysts say it's a campaign to take her fight with the DA to the streets. There's also another dispute as to who should pay Delil's legal costs. The DA insists that the mayor should pay her own costs in the ongoing court battle with the party, even though an appeals committee has decided that council should pay. Delil requested legal assistance from the city, which council speaker Dag Smith refused. However, his decision was overturned by the council's appeals committee. Delil says she's willing to pay her own legal costs if she is found guilty of any charges, including that of maladministration that the DA is bringing against her. I'm Chris Mabuya in Cape Town. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, South Sudan's President Silva Kiir and rebel leader Rahik Machar have reportedly broken a deadlock in peace talks being held in the Sudanese capital Khartoum. U.S. President Donald Trump has celebrated the Supreme Court's decision to back one of his key initiatives, a travel ban targeting five Muslim-majority countries. And several Congolese, Malian and Yemeni groups have been added to the United Nations annual blacklist of groups violating children's rights in wartime. Those are the stories making headlines. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. For the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign 
in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the 10 billion rand investment announced by German carmaker Mercedes-Benz will drive massive job creation and empower the poor people in South Africa. Addressing Mercedes-Benz South Africa at its East London manufacturing plant, Ramaphosa says the investment shows that Mercedes-Benz has full confidence in the country's economy. Makaya Komisa reports. President Ramaphosa says this investment is a statement of trust in the South African government and the economy. He says this investment will definitely touch the lives of the people of the Eastern Cape. He hopes that it will create dozens of jobs for the people of this province. This investment is a statement of trust, a statement of confidence that the city's bands is demonstrating to all and sundry in our country and beyond the shores of our country that South Africa is indeed a good investment destination and we welcome you for having brought this investment here. Earlier in the day, Ramaphosa also visited the Mercedes-Benz Learning Academy. The academy has been running since 2004 and is a public-private partnership in cooperation with the National Treasury and the Jobs Fund. He says the academy will equip young people and women with skills. I saw a number of young women being trained here. We also expect that out of this will also much number of women-led businesses who will also get into business and be in the whole value chain of this whole effort of making the vehicles that you make. So this is a great investment and we applaud it because out of it we are waiting and expect to see much more than just the 10 billion rand Board member of Mercedes-Benz, Marcus Schaeffer, says they are committed to growing the East London plant and its workers. You contribute to the economic success of this country. You drive the high export rates. The plant is a key factor in South Africa's national trade balance. We can look back on the past six decades with enormous pride because we know this plant's outstanding development wouldn't have been possible without the great people working here, that's you. Eastern Cape Premier Pumulo Maswale says this investment will go a long way in addressing unemployment in the area. On our part as the province, less than a month ago, we were here in these beautiful shores welcoming another investment. Mr. President, we can see it works. Uh, often people say things that are never followed by actions, but you can see that what you say resonates with all of us, resonates well with society, and indeed today we are here to witness one of those important milestones that we're very grateful for it to be happening in this beautiful province of ours. 
Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis, who was also present at the announcement of the investment, has challenged other investors to invest in South Africa. I'm Makaya Komisa in East London, in the Eastern Cape. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at Rise Shine Africa. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org or WhatsApp on 277-6300327. Channel Africa, the African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. South Africa's communications minister Nomvula Mukonyane has called for a return to the values like non-racialism and tolerance embraced by struggle stalwarts such as former President Nelson Mandela and Albertina Susulu. She was taking part in a debate in the National Council of Provinces entitled Celebrating the Life and Times of Two Great Giants of Our Liberation. Celine Merrington reports. Mukunyani says not everybody is committed to equality and tolerance today, values which were championed by Mandela and Susulu. They championed also the call as espoused in the Freedom Charter that the people shall govern, including those who are seeking to divide us and cast aspersions on the character and the character and the formation of a new nation by continuously insulting some of our own communities, particularly the Indian community. She says like Madiba, the country has a shared responsibility of mutual respect, tolerance and acceptance. He was a central figure in the struggle for liberation from the unjust apartheid system to an inclusive democracy, including embracing non-racialism and respect for the Indian community. The chairperson of the NCOP, Tandi Modisi, has hailed the stalwarts for the lessons they taught. They are honesty, their frankness, they are dependable, their consistency, their patience, their hum- humility, and the fact that they were diligent. They were both hard taskmasters. They would not relent when, in fact, you were their task. They would sit on you until what they set out to turn you into, you turned into. DAMP Kathy Labaskagni says the Rainbow Nation is now tarnished by corruption. Today, South Africa is the epitome of state capture and corruption, negotiated by powerful politicians and their cronies by the principles of power, greed and a disrespect for human rights. It is a journey marked by the fight for power within the governing party, the ANC at Polokwani, that led to a winding road of decline in values, principles and discipline. And maybe I should also mention an audit Q7 bought for Minister Mokunyana by a bankrupt water and sanitation department 
three weeks before she was reshuffled, reshuffled, now gathering dust in a garage. A member of the UDM, Lennox Gaylor, reminded the House that neither Mandela or Sisulu were ever embroiled in scandals involving corruption. These gents never confused leadership with position. For them, leadership was behavioral and not positional, and their leadership was not defined by titles. They were uniting. They never had their hands in the kitty as greed is the order of, the, uh, of today. And... Uh that was UDM MP Lennox Agrela ending that report by Zaline Merrington in the South African Parliament. South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Lindue Sisulu, has urged South Africans to preserve the lessons of former ambassador to Canada, Billy Mudise, so that they can pass them to the future generations. Mudise's memorial service was held at Dercor head offices in Pretoria. Mudise died last week at the age of 87 at the Unitas Military Hospital in Pretoria. Fanel Schumer reports. The former South African ambassador to Canada, Billy Modisem, has occupied numerous top positions, among others, for the United Nations in 1975. Modise, who also served as the chief of state protocol under former President Tabombekin, was posted as South Africa's high commissioner to Canada in 1995. International Relations Minister Lindy Wessisulum told Monas at the memorial service that Modise was a gallant Kadam who was not afraid to denounce apartheid. Uncle Billy was nonetheless at all times always guided by a firm understanding of the complex interaction and the mutuality and supportive nature of the four pillars of our struggle for liberation. His work in Sweden, which has been elaborated upon by Ambassador Lindy Mabuza, and that in the Nordic community was well covered here. It stands out as an outstanding work that was given by a young man. Under Uncle Billy, the Swedes loved him, and we loved the Swedes. Gauteng Premier David Makura says the family of the late former South African ambassador to Canada is like many others that suffered for the liberation of this country. We thank the Mudise family not only for sharing Uncle Billy with us, but also for your own sacrifices for the freedom in our country. Your family, like many families, are among those that have suffered and sacrificed so that our country can be free. Other speakers applauded Modise for his unwavering commitment to the struggle against apartheid. Former Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Aziz Pahad is one of them. Comrade Billy carried out his task calmly and without any sense of exaggerated authority. I believe he had learned this old diplomat saying that a diplomat is a person who tells you to go to hell and you look forward to the journey. <laughs> and that was Comrade Billy. His style of work made him popular with our presidents, ministers, deputy ministers and visiting dignitaries. Representative of the veterans, Ambassador Lindwe Mabuzam says Modise was never hesitant to mobilize against apartheid, even during his stay in Sweden. Mabuza recalls Modise's arrival in Sweden in 1916. As a witness against Fervut, he traveled the country denouncing apartheid calling for a boycott of South African goods and laying the ground for official support by the Swedish government to the ANC. 
extended from 1973. Although many described him as a brave politician, to his family he was a teacher, a dancer, and a singer at the same time. Tsepo Modisem says his uncle never ceased learning. Even with his intellectual prowess, he would seek advice from younger people because he believed that he was never too old to learn. And like we say in Setswana, he had a catchy eye of gems and he made one of them our auntie, Yolishaboko. <laughs> Such a charmer he was, he passionately loved his family and always well-dressed like a true Mudisi. Former President Tabombekim, scores of current and former members of parliament and dignitaries from the diplomatic community were in attendance. The presidency has declared a special official funeral for Mudisem. He will be laid to rest at the West Park Cemetery in Johannesburg on Thursday. Fanuel Schumer, SABC News in Pretoria. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. The Manufacturers Association of Nigeria has accused the Nigerian Office for Trade Negotiations of not addressing concerns of stakeholders regarding the African continental free trade area, saying there is need for the federal government to appoint an independent national negotiator. President of Manufacturers Association Frank Jacobs made his call at a press briefing in Lagos on Tuesday and said that the concerns that necessitated President Mahmoud Buhari's reservations of his signature at the summit in Kigali are yet to be addressed. The manufacturers derided the situation whereby the director of NOTN, who is Nigeria's chief negotiator, also doubles as chairman of the AU member countries' negotiation committee, noting that it might result in conflict of interest. The Southern African Development Community, SADC, has the potential to increase its gas reserves by 2030. South Africa's Minister of Energy, Jeff Khadebe, says gas usage has increased in Africa over the past few years as a result of rapid urbanization and population growth. He was speaking at the SADC Ministerial Workshop on Regional Gas Infrastructure and Market Development in Santon, Johannesburg. Amina Akram reports. Minister of Energy Jeff Khadebe says the Sadiq region has potential to build a mega gas project similar to the West African gas pipeline that links Nigeria, Benin, Togo and Ghana. However, this will need investment and the right regulatory framework, including much needed capital. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon says corruption of any kind was not tolerated during his tenure at the South African Revenue Services SARS. Gordon was the first witness to give evidence at the public hearing of the SARS inquiry, which is taking place over the next three days in the capital, Pretoria. Naledi Ngobo reports. Pavin Godan was SARS Commissioner from 1999 to 2009. He says during his tenure as SARS Commissioner, a number of measures were put in place to improve tax compliance in the country. Godan says anti-avoidance measures, assessing efficiencies and legislative loopholes were improved to drive tax revenue performance. 
Kenya Revenue Authority has linked a county government's payment systems to its own automated tax platform, ITEX, to speed up tax dispute resolution. KRA's Deputy Commissioner, Rispe Simiyu, says linking county government's integrated financial management information systems to the ITEX platform would automate remittance of suppliers withheld taxes. Counties are tax withholding agents, but lack of this linkage had left contractors and the taxmen at war. As counties delayed in wiring 6% of taxes owed by their business partners, she explained that linking counties is... Uh, rather, linking counties IFMIS to tax will fast-track tax dispute resolution and lower litigation costs. Rwanda's trade deficit is reduced by 1.4% in the first five months of 2018 compared to 2017. This was attributed to an increase in formal export revenues by about 29%, which outweighed an increase in formal imports at 9%. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.14 Botswana Pula. It's at 9.86 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.77 Brazilian rule, at 62.93 Russian ruble, and at 68.13 Indian rupee. 6.56 Chinese yuan, 13.53 to the South African rand. 75 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro. Gold 1,000, $255. Platinum, $861 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $76.55 a barrel. My name is Tabisolo Hoku and you're listening to Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figle Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, beginning with football news, Argentina and Lionel Messi scraped into the knockout stages of the World Cup by the skin of their teeth on Tuesday night after an 86th-minute strike from defender Marcos Hoyo gave them a barely-deserved 2 and win over Nigeria, eliminating the African side. Here is commentary from that match. Moses scores for Nigeria. Their level, the Africans hit back and the whole of Argentina is stunned here. And of all people, it was Mascherano. Romano is closing on Maradona's record of appearances for Argentina. Mascherano conceded the spot kick. Mascherano now. Every pass becomes important. They need a brilliant ball from somebody. They've got their goal. Argentina lives on. What a moment here. Argentina have taken the lead for the second time on the night. And this is what it means. Total, total jubilation in St. Petersburg. Argentina have done it. They've survived a major scare. Nigeria 1, Argentina 2. Croatia, who advances winners of Group D with a maximum nine points after beating Iceland 2-1, will take on Denmark. Zimbabwe under-17 team will be part of the 2018 Kosafa under-17 championship in Mauritius from the 19th to the 29th of July. 
Team coach Safazo Mashiri will use the Copa Coca-Cola as part of the process to select his team. Zimbabwe did not enter the qualifiers for the continental competition in four editions, but they returned to compete in the Kosafa competition last year. Moses Chunga guided the young warriors last year. His experimental side lost all their three Group A games, including a 5-0 defeat at the hands of Malawi. Chunga said he did not choose a team that was meant to win the tournament, but one that could expose teenager footballers to the challenges of international football. On to cricket news, Kusala Pereira battled through a painful chest injury in partnership with namesake Dilruan Pereira to guide Sri Lanka to a historic series leveling four-wicket victory over the West Indies in the third and the final test at the Kensington Oval in Barbados last night. Set a target of 144 and resuming on the fourth day at the overnight position of 81 for 5. Sri Lanka reached their goal for the loss of one day additional wicket to become the first Asian team ever to win a test match at the Caribbean cricket's most iconic venue. That wicket, which fell in the very first over of the afternoon to West Indies captain Jason Holder, ushered in Kusala, whose further participation in the match was in serious doubt when he injured himself, crashing into the advertising boards when attempting to catch and nearing the end of the West Indies second innings the previous night. Zimbabwe's character to bounce back and, and breathe life into the Rugby Africa Gold Cup campaign will be put to the test on Saturday when the Sables take on Kenya in the second of the 2019 World Cup qualifying assignments in Nairobi. The Sables regrouped in Harare on Sunday night and had their first training sessions together on Monday ahead of their expected trip to Nairobi today. Peter de Villa's men will, however, fly to East Africa knowing that pressure has mounted on them to deliver a victory or kiss goodbye to any hopes of securing a berth at the World Cup showcase in Japan next year. And finally, with Golf News, John Daly has withdrawn from this week's U.S. Senior Open after his request to use a buggy during play was rejected. The USGA, who ran the tournament, denied Daly's request to use a buggy despite an injured right knee. The two-time major winner confirmed the news on social media. In his tweet daily, refer, referenced the AIDA, the Americans with Disability Act of 1990, which prohibits discrimination based on disability. Daly captured his first Champions Tour title at the Insperity Invitational last year and has had three further top 10 finishes this year. That's the Sport News this hour. Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals in Russia. Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and a podcast of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday. Saturday and Sunday from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's presidential candidates sign peace pledge ahead of elections. And UN envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in Afghanistan. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Sisen Lovo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Yusundo with a song titled 7 Seconds.
Channel Africa, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. <laughs> 